0: Well, guess what book of the Bible we're in today? We are back in the book of Mark. If you didn't know that, that's cuz you are new. Today we are picking up where we left off in our study of the book of Mark that we are calling the Simple Gospel. If you are new to our church, you need to understand that our favorite way of preaching the Bible here, not our only way, but our favorite way of preaching the Bible is to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line, until we reach the very end. It's known as expositional preaching. It's actually a core value for us. And so in March of 2018, We started chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Mark, and here we find ourselves today in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there as we get to this place in Mark. It introduces a new theme known as the Olivet Discourse or the mini-apocalypse of Jesus, what some of you may have come to know as the rapture. And so we're going to be starting a sermon series, mini-series, that we are calling Living in the Last Days. So... Get ready and get excited. But let me go ahead and start by adding a little preface. Let's just be honest. When Christians start talking about the end times, it can get a little weird. Amen? It can get a little weird. Everybody knows those Christians, don't you? Well, I grew up in one of those churches. How many of you grew up in the 90s in the church? Let me see all my 90s people. That's me. Okay, so you have PTSD from rapture theology. Do you not? Do you not? I know. I know. I do. Okay. Listen. I'm gonna just tell you a funny story before we get started. When I was in third grade, Miss Bell, she was my teacher. We would have rapture practice. You say, "What's rapture practice?" It's the reason that I am in therapy today. No, um, <laughs> rapture practice. Is it's kind of like a fire drill or maybe like a tornado warning. Do you guys remember that? Right. Well, rapture practice was similar to that. So she would actually pull out a shofar in class. If you don't know what a shofar is, you're lucky. Okay. So for those of us who were Pentecostal in the 90s, she would pull out a shofar. And it was basically a goat horn, you know. And then she would blow it like a trumpet. It would be like, and that signifies it's the rapture. So we all had to get out of our chairs And then we had to start doing this. Rapture practice! Rapture practice! Because we didn't want to get left behind. right? We needed to get ready and prepared for at any moment in the twinkling of an eye, the Lord Jesus could come back. And so we need to be rapture ready. Anybody have to do that? Anybody else? Nope? Okay, well, y'all can pray for me then. (laughs) And so growing up with that... What happened with me and many people who are young evangelicals today, because there was an over-focus on end-times theology, well, we just went in the complete opposite direction. It's where we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We're not going to study it, right? That's for those Christians. We don't want to be one of those Christians. And so the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. All week long, as I've been preparing and talking to different people in our congregation. Most of our church is young. And so I asked them, I said, have you ever heard a sermon series over the end times? Have you ever heard biblical teaching over the rapture? Not watch a Left Behind movie, but have biblical teaching behind the end times. And 9 out of 10 have not. I went online and I looked up some of the most famous megachurch pastors that you're all sharing on Facebook and watching their sermons on YouTube. And I could not find one teaching from them over this subject within the last 10 years. Which means many of us, we have adopted this position that just because we can't know everything means we can't know anything. That's called ignorance, just so you know. We think just because we can't know everything means we can't know anything. So what's the point? Why bother? Why try? Let's not talk about it. So some overemphasize it. Some underemphasize it. And then others of you here today just don't believe it. Many people just do not believe that Jesus is going to come. They would say, well, he said that 2,000 years ago, and I checked my watch, and he's still not back. So that must mean he's never coming back. He's not coming back. That the second coming of Jesus is just a myth. It's just folklore, it's fairy tale, it's a way for pastors like you to preach doom and gloom, turn and burn, to be able to manipulate people into making a decision for Christ, and so we don't need to talk about it because that is foolishness. Listen, just let me tell you something, just because something has not happened doesn't mean that it won't happen. Let me give you a simple illustration that you may know. Um, You have a case on your iPhone, do you not? Do you know why you have a case? just in case. (laughs) Pun definitely intended. Because you never know when you're going to break your phone. You could be leaving here today, and you could drop your phone in the parking lot and shatter the case. And so you want to make sure that you have it. Just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it won't happen. When you get in your car, you're going to wear your seatbelt. I hope you wear your seatbelt. Please wear your seatbelt. When you get in a car, wear your seatbelt. Why? Because you never know. Someone could come and sideswipe you at any moment and your head could go flying through the windshield. You want to be ready, you want to be prepared because just in case it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it won't happen. It's the same thing when it comes to the second coming. Let me dig down just a little bit deeper. Every single person in this room will die. You say that's a bummer way to open your sermon. I know, it's going to get worse, much worse. Stick around to the end. Every single person in this room is going to die. Just because you haven't died yet doesn't mean you're never going to die. Just because Jesus hasn't come back yet doesn't mean that Jesus will not return just like he said he would. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is going to be the thought that's going to drive the rest of this sermon series. The question is not if Jesus will return, the question is when. The question is not if. This is going to happen because it is going to happen. Jesus said that it was going to happen. We can believe that it will happen. The question is not if. The question is when. That's what eschatology deals with. This is the theological term for the study of the end times. Eschatology. Big fancy college word. So turn to your neighbor and say eschatology. eschatology. Now tell them God bless you. Please don't sneeze on me. Eschatology, okay? Okay. And it literally means the study of the end times. But Christians aren't the only ones that have an eschatology. In fact, most of the world has an eschatology. Science even has an eschatology. It's known as the second law of thermodynamics or entropy. That everything is moving from order to chaos, from order to disorder. And that eventually they studied what is known as heat death. That the sun is going to go out, and over time, everything in the world is going to be destroyed. Funny, because that's exactly what Mark 13 in Revelation teaches, that the sun will go out, and everything is going to be destroyed destroyed see science actually agrees with the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 God made everything he said it is good it is very good and it was made in order and then sin enters into the world our first parents Adam and Eve they sinned they fell they rebelled they separated themselves from God and the wages of sin is death and starting Genesis 3 and 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 21 guess what we see chaos crazy destruction disorder and devastation until one day jesus Jesus comes back and he makes everything right. This is exactly what science and the Bible both teach. The second law of thermodynamics or the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13. We also know that there are other religions that put forth versions of eschatology. So in Buddhism and in Hinduism, they teach that the world is going to reincarnate itself. In a little bit, we're actually going to talk about um, Islam and what their version of eschatology is. There are the astrologists, not to be confused with real science astronomy, but astrologists who get their doctrine from the back of a newspaper, astrologists. What they would say is that we're going to enter into an age of Aquarius where everybody breaks out in a musical and starts smoking weed. That's what they believe. There's even environmental tree-hugging eco-warriors where they believe that due to climate change, The world is going to end. So you have people and theologians like Greta Thunberg and AOC who who give out the 2050 scenario. This is what they believe, that unless you stop driving SUVs and working at the plants, by the year 2050, the whole world will be inhabitable and it will be destroyed. By the year 2050. Jesus says, do not set a date for no man knows the day nor the hour, but they do. So if you drove here in an SUV, shame on you. But that's their version of eschatology because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Everyone believes that the world is going to end. Even pop culture has an eschatology. This is why every year there's a brand new disaster movie that comes out. Major blockbuster films like I Am Legend and Will Smith. The Book of Eli with Denzel Washington. War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. And my personal favorite, Thor Ragnarok which is really should be the only Thor they ever made. True or false, right? It's true. The other two, (laughs) Thor Ragnarok was amazing. And you know what Ragnarok is? Ragnarok is an eschatology. It's the end of the world. Because everybody knows that this will end. The question is not if this will happen. The question is when. Jesus was clear. The end will come. The question is, when And that's the question that Jesus is going to answer today for us in Mark chapter 13. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 13, and here's what the sermon title is today. Six signs of the end times. Jesus gives us, in this passage of scripture, six things that we can look for and expect when the end comes. Jesus says, no man knows the day nor the hour. That's Mark 13, 37. No man knows the day nor the hour. Not the Son of Man nor the angels in heaven, but only the Father. And that has speculated many people to say, well, because we don't know anything, we can't know anything at all, so what's the point? Because the very next words that Jesus says is this. Be alert. Be on guard and keep watch. Just because you don't know everything doesn't mean you can't know anything. Jesus is very clear in his teachings about what we can expect when it comes to the end times. And here in Mark 13, 1 through 13, he gives us six signs of the end times. Are you ready? Doesn't matter. (laughs) Just like he's coming, whether you're ready or not, I'm preaching whether you're ready or not. Here we go. Chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. The first sign that you're to look for is this. There will be destruction. Mark 13, 1. And he, that's Jesus, came out of the temple. One of his disciples said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Let me pause right there. The temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a massive temple complex, about 14 football fields in size. And it was gilded with gold. Everywhere you look, it was covered with gold. It took them over 40 years for them to build. One stone of the temple was about the size of a railroad cart, like 40 tons. That's how massive this thing was. And as the sun was setting, the temple would shine as the sunlight reflected off of the gold and would basically blind you. It was the city of light, and it would shine out. And at the end of the day, the disciples, they look and they see this wonderful building, and they say, Jesus, look at that amazing building. Isn't that amazing? And then here's what Jesus says. Do you see those great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus says, you want to know what's really amazing? This will all be destroyed. How many of you have a friend like Jesus? (laughs) Like today was great. It's all gonna burn anyway. You're like, Look, I got me a new car. Oh, well, you know what? God's going to set it on fire one day, right? How many of you have a friend like Jesus, right? Bummer, Jesus. Okay, but it's going to get worse. Here's what happens next. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another. And as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of these things that are about to be What we find here in Mark chapter 13 is that Jesus is at the last days of his life. For three years, Jesus has been preaching, teaching, healing, revealing the kingdom of God through signs, wonders, and miracles. And he's been journeying from Galilee to the holy city of Jerusalem. And on Monday, he comes in in what is known as the triumphal entry where he's riding on a donkey and they're waving the palm branches and singing Hosanna, Hosanna as he fulfills the messianic promises of David in the book of Psalms. And then afterwards, on Tuesday, he gets up, he heads back into the temple, kills a tree, and then he, gets, he starts flipping over tables. He goes full on Indiana Jones. He just goes, I want to make me a whip over here, makes him a little whip, comes back in, whoosh, Cracks the whip, flips over the tables, freaks out everybody, drives out the money changers. And he says, this, that you might, you should know that my house will be called a house of prayer. But you have turned this into a den of robbers. And after he flips over the tables, he leaves. And he wakes up the next morning and he said, man, that was a lot of fun getting in trouble Let's do it again. And so Wednesday morning, he wakes up, goes back into the temple, and he gets in five fights, conflicts with the religious leaders. I mean, it is back to back to back to back. It's basically like a royal rumble. Here come the scribes over the top turnbuckle. Here come the Pharisees, clothesline. I mean, it is just pile driving the Sanhedrin, just dropping them down. That's Jesus on Wednesday. After the Royal Rumble Battle Royale with the religious leaders and a 10-hour sermon. Y'all think my sermons were long? You're like, we got to beat the Baptists to Chili's. Listen, there were no Baptists in Jesus' day, all right? So you ain't beating them to Chili's today either. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what we see that happens. After the 10-hour-long sermon from Jesus, he leaves with his disciples, and he goes through the Kidron Valley, and he heads back up to what we see right here, the Mount of Olives. And as they're up on the Mount of Olives and they're looking over the beautiful city and the wonderful buildings, the disciples say, Jesus, aren't these buildings amazing? And Jesus says, you know, it's going to be even more amazing. They will all be destroyed. The first sign that you look for when it comes to the end times is this, there will be Destruction. What I find fascinating about this text is that the disciples, they don't argue with them. They're not like, Jesus, you're crazy. Jesus, that's impossible. See, for them, the the temple was the center of all religious activity. Every year they would go to the temple for all of their history, and they would perform sacrifices and give their tithes. They would have their sins to be atoned for. It was the center for the Jewish faith. It was considered to be indestructible. But yet Jesus in this moment says, it's all going to be destroyed. And they don't argue with him. They don't disagree with him. They don't fight with him. Instead, here's what they say. Tell me more. Tell me when. They've been with Jesus for three years. They've seen him raise the dead, walk on water, feed 5,000. They've heard him say some crazy things already. like, Like, I am the son of man and I will be dead and resurrected in three days and handed over to the chief priests and scribes and beaten. This fulfills the prophecy. They're like... I'm going to believe this guy. And Jesus here says it will all be destroyed. And he doesn't say, they don't say, no way. They say, tell me when. Because remember, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So when will the temple be destroyed? Well, if you're a student of history and the Bible, you know that in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. That Rome laid siege in a four year war with Israel and came in and under general Titus they actually destroyed the temple leveled the city raised not raised, but raised with the Z, raised and destroyed everything in there, and there was not one stone that was left on top of another. You can actually go look at pictures of Israel today, and there is massive stones that have all been disfigured and torn apart, and Jesus' prophecy came true in AD 70. In AD 70, here's what we see: is that the doomsday clock began. We are living in the end times because the first sign was destruction. Jesus said it would happen, and it happened 40 years after he prophesied the destruction of the temple. It came true. And so that means we are living in the last days right now. When I posted on social media all week long, I've been like, hey, do you believe we're living in the last days? And more than 50% of people said, no, I do not believe that we are living in the last days. But that's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the moment that destruction of the temple took place, the last days began. It literally was the beginning of the end. Hebrews tells us that we are living in the last days. In the former times, he spoke to us by the prophets. But in the last days, he speaks to us by Jesus. 1 John talks about in the last days, there will be an antichrist. But I tell you that there have been many antichrists even up to this point. We're going to talk about that in detail next week. And then in 1 Timothy, it says this: In the last days, people will be lovers of themselves. Just look around the world that we live in. Do you not believe that we were living in the last days? The Bible is clear: the last days began in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. You say, Why is this important? Because this prophecy is significant so that way we can have trust. Because Jesus was tested with this. If you're taking notes, write it down. Because Jesus was tested with this, he can be trusted with the rest. Because Jesus' prophecy in AD 70 came true, that means everything he's going to say after this also must be true. He was right here, which means he's going to be right there. He was tested here, and he was found faithful and true. He could be tested with the rest, and he can remain faithful and true. Because he was tested here, he could be trusted there. I want you to understand something, that the Old Testament has 300 prophetic references to the coming of the Lord Jesus. 100 of those prophecies are about his first coming through his virgin birth, through his sinless life, and his atoning death on the cross. 100 prophecies refer to his first coming, and as we've already studied in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was faithful to fulfill all 100 prophecies of his first coming, then you better believe that Jesus is going to fulfill all 200 prophecies in regard to his second coming. Because he was tested with this, he can be trusted with the rest. The doomsday clock began in 70 A.D., and we've been ticking and counting down ever since. It starts with destruction. But that's where it begins. The first sign that we are to look for is that there will be destruction. The second sign that we're to look for is that there is going to be deception. Here's what Jesus says next. And Jesus began to tell them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying that I am he, and they will lead many astray. Are we living in a day of deception? Yes, absolutely. We are living in a day of deception. And some of you would say, no, 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 not me. I'm not being deceived, which by the very nature of deception means that you're deceived. Because people who are deceived don't actually know that they're deceived. That's how Deception works. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Here's what you need to know. I want you to grasp this because this is so incredibly important. If you don't know what you believe, you will end up believing anything. If you don't know what you believe, then you will end up believing in. Anything. This is how people end up getting deceived. They're deceived because they don't actually know what it is that they believe. And right now it's very popular for us to say that all religions basically teach the same thing. That you have your truth, and they have their truth, and there's multiple paths and many ways that we can all get to God. That all religions, basically, they teach the same thing. That there is one God, and it goes by many names. Some call him Krishna, some say Vishnu, some say Allah, some say Jesus, but they're all basically the same. Let me tell you something. is that we call people different names because they're different people. Like if you were to come up to me and you say, hey, Susie, I'd say, I don't know you. Because my name's not Susie. Okay, and you don't know me either. We call people by different names because they're different people, and there are different gods, but there's only one real God. Jesus says it like this, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And I would submit to you this, that behind every false God is really a demon in disguise seeking to deceive you. And if you don't know what you believe, then you will end up believing anything. And this is why I get so concerned for those of you who are young, college age, and you have Wi-Fi connection and social media because you've been taught critical theory, but you have not been taught critical thinking. And the moment you see a YouTube video or a viral post or a TikTok reel or a funny meme, all of a sudden you start thinking with your emotions instead of thinking with the Bible and truth goes out the window all in the name of love. You say, well, we need to love them. Yes, we do need to love them. We are called to love everyone, but we don't love people by lying to them. And you think, well, I just got to be loving. I got to be loving. I need to be loved. No, you are not being loved by them. You are being lied to them. And because you don't know what you believe, you'll believe a stupid meme on TikTok and not the Bible yourself. If you don't know what you believe, the time is coming. There will be an increase of deception. And my fear for many of you is that you are so biblically illiterate that you will believe anything that you see on the internet. If you don't know what you believe, then you will end up believing in anything. And this started in eighty seventy in Rome. In Rome, they actually had what is known as the emperor cult. And so every Caesar and Nero and Caligula and Titus, they would set up their political leaders to be their gods. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? People worshiping politics. Okay. You can go listen to that sermon a few weeks ago, but either way. And it continued on in the invention of Islam in the 5th and 6th century. Just so you know, not all religions are the same. And saying that is ignorant, and they're diametrically opposed, and that is kind of offensive. If you would go up to a Muslim and say, do you believe the same things that the Buddhist believes, they would tell you, no, not at all. If you were to come up to a Bible-believing, faithful Christian and say, do you believe the same things that the Muslims believe, we would say, no. And they would also disagree with you because we hold different doctrines and different theologies, and we believe radically different things. So in Islam, they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that he was a prophet in a line of prophets to prepare the way for Muhammad, the greater prophet. They do not believe that Jesus died for our sins. They do not believe that Jesus died on a cross. They do not believe that Jesus was the son of God, fully God, fully man. They do not believe that Jesus resurrected from the grave. Here's what they believe, that after Jesus' life, he was taken up into the clouds like Elijah, and one day, yes, Jesus will return. But as he returns, he's going to come back to help set up the 12th caliphate with the 12th imam. And then upon his second coming, he's going to travel around the world, and he's going to destroy crosses, and he's going to destroy churches, and he's going to murder Christians, and he's going to remove the tax that allows um, non- Muslim people to live in Muslim land, basically saying you have to convert to become a Muslim or death upon you all. And Jesus is going to remove that tax. After he's finished with that, he's going to come back to, the, to the, do the hajj. He's going to salute Muhammad. Muhammad from the grave is going to salute you as if to affirm him. And then Jesus is going to marry a woman, produce children, and die of old age. Just so you know, we're not the same. If you don't know what you believe, then you will end up believing in anything. But there's also false doctrines and false teachings and deception under the guise of Christianity. That's how you end up with end-time cults like Jehovah's Witness. The Jehovah's Witness is an end-time cult where they believe they're the 144,000 prophesied in the book of Revelation and they're the only pure church and everybody else is apostate. But they also believe that Jesus is actually uh, Gabriel, the archangel, and that he didn't rise with a physical body, but with a spiritual body, which is a heresy called Gnosticism, which has been condemned since the third century in Christianity. We do not believe that. And then you have Mormons who believe that Jesus is the half-brother of Lucifer and that he was just a man who ascended to become his own Elohim God. And that he has another planet where he has polygamous wives and fantasies and he populates that world with spirit babies. You say, well, how did you come to that? Well, when you die, you get your own planet to populate with spirit babies, not ladies. No, men, that's you, polygamous, right? Women, I'm sorry, but, you know. Um, (laughs) Hey, look, I'm married to one woman. That's one woman too many sometimes. So I'm just saying. (laughs) So I can barely, she's going to beat me up when I get home. That's what's going to (laughs) happen. They say, Well, Byron, how do you know that? Well, because John Smith was visited by an angel named Moroni. Let me just tell you if an angel named Moron visits you, you probably don't want to believe him. It's a false teaching, It's it's a cult, it's unbiblical. And then you have the Christian scientists, which are like grape nuts there's no grapes, there's no nuts, they're not Christians, and they're not scientists. It's deception. And if you don't know what you believe, then you're gonna end up believing anything. But even in the evangelical church, there is false teachings around the end times. In the 1980s, there was a, a man named Edgar Wisenhunt. Some of you might remember him. He wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Is Gonna Come Back in 1988. And this caused massive panic in the church of the day. He would actually send thousands of copies to pastors. Millions of copies were sold in Bible bookstores nationwide. And people were panicking. They were selling their houses, cashing out all of their retirement and stocks and bonds, and they were moving to Jasper. Because <laughs> they thought it was the end of the world. And then it didn't happen. And so the next year, he wrote another book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. He found one more reason, and it still didn't happen. So he wrote another book, 92 and 92, and then 93 and 93. And then he wrote his last book, 97 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1997. And when that didn't happen, he realized, I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But people believed him. Because if you don't know what you believe, then you will believe anything. There is a increase of deception that is continually increasing throughout the generations. Jesus says, how do we know the end is going to come? He said, there will be deception. The third sign that we look for is this. There will be deception. Devastation. Here's what Jesus says. He says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. The end began in AD 70, but the end is not yet. This is but the beginning of the end. Here's what he goes. He goes on and says, The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes. there in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginning of birth pains. We call this 2020, amen? Hey, how many of you remember back in January? I know that was a long time ago. January 2020 was like a decade ago. But back in January 2020, how many of you remember when World War III almost broke out? Do you remember that? You're like, I don't really remember that. You know why? Because the next week... Australia caught on fire, and, and wildfires devastated pretty much the entire continent. Do you remember that? And you're like, no, I don't remember that because the next week there was a cruise liner in the Gulf of Mexico with people quarantined because there was a mysterious virus on the boat. They didn't want to let it get out, and you know what that ended up becoming? Uh, 2.9 million COVID deaths that spread a pandemic all across the world, and in the middle of even the pandemic, what we saw was that we had we had race riots and we had you know people being murdered in the streets. We had Antifa and anarchist organizations burning down entire cities. We had Republicans storming the White House. We had a presidential election, three hurricanes, and a partridge in a pear tree. It was a wild year. How many of you remember murder hornets? Like, that was a thing. Murder hornets for real. Like, how many of you during 2020, you were like reading Revelation in the fetal position, loading your gun and sucking your thumb? Like, that's you, right? You're like, this is it. This is the end of the world, right? Everybody, go buy bottled water, stock up on canned goods. We're out of toilet paper. (laughs) Hope you like spam and drinking your own pee. It's the end of the world. Is he always like this? Yes. 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 I joke, but we all know that person, don't we? And if you don't know that person, you're that person. (laughs) It's okay, we love you. Welcome to redemption. Church is big enough for all of us. I kid, but that's actually kind of what Jesus says is going to happen. That in the last days, there will be Devastation, And there will be a cataclysm and there will be a devastation that the world has never seen. So why, why does Jesus tell us this? He doesn't tell us these things to freak us out. No, he tells us the things so that way we can have faith. He doesn't tell these things so that way we could be condemned, though. He tells us things not so we could be concerned. He tells us that we could be comforted and that we could know that we can trust him and we can believe in him and we can place our faith in him. He doesn't tell us these things so that way we can be anxious. He wants us to be alert. If you're taking notes, write this down. You can be alert without being alarmed. Look at what the word says. He, he says this right here. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Don't sell all of your possessions. Right, don't go in your backyard and dig a bomb shelter and go all doomsday prepper and load your garage up with non-perishable canned items. Like Don't do that. He doesn't say, go do that. No, here's what he says. He says that you can be alert without being alarmed. 19 times in this section, Jesus actually gives us imperatives to be aware, to be on watch, to be alert when it comes to knowing the signs of the end times. And so here's three things that Jesus tells us to be alert for, to be on watch for. Here's what he tells us in this section right here. He says this, that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Now, in the last 2,000 years... Since Jesus ascended, historians estimate that there have been 1 billion people who have died in battle. Since the time of Christ, there have only been 288 years of recorded peace. And those years are not in succession. They're sparse and spread out throughout human history. In World War I and World War II, 115 million people died due to that war. In American history, we have fought 93 wars as a nation. There has not been one president where a war has not been fought. For every president who says they are a peacetime president, it's not true. There has not been one president in our history where there has not been engaged into a conflict. Currently in the world right now, there are 10 wars that are being fought, which means to show that all we know how to do as humans is fight and murder and conflict and kill, and peace only comes when people stop to reload their guns. Kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation, wars and rumors of wars. Jesus said it would happen, and exactly what Jesus said would happen has and is currently happening. He also says there will be earthquakes. It might be comforting to know that the National Earthquake Center records 500,000 earthquakes every single year. 20,000 earthquakes are measured on a Richter scale and get recorded. And just to be able to help you understand, there are 55 earthquakes that are happening every single day. And earthquakes don't have to be along a fault line. They could happen anywhere and anytime. Aren't you glad you came to church? We are on very shaky ground, and it's increasing with earthquakes and natural disasters, tsunamis and mudslides and hurricanes. I remember when I was a a little kid, we only had just a handful of hurricanes growing up. Like, I remember, like, one, Hurricane Andrew. Like, that's the only one that I remember. But it seems like every single year there's a new hurricane. Many of you, your homes in the last two years have been destroyed three times. It seems like every August and September we have to basically shut down church because a hurricane is coming. Everybody evacuates. By the time we get back, there's another hurricane out in the Gulf. And scientists would speculate that this is only continuing to increase and increase the devastation that's happening. This is why global warming is a thing today. This is why they're postulating that global warming is going to continue to increase until eventually it's going to destroy the world that we in. And so you have people like Greta Thunberg and like AOC who would, pop, who would popularize climate change. Jesus would agree with them. Yeah, the climate is changing. It's called birth pains. This is exactly what he says in this next place. He says, this is birth pains. And everyone who has had a child would tell you that as... The birth gets closer and closer, what happens? The contractions, discomfort, and pain gets closer and closer. This is the way that we're to interpret prophecy. That prophecy started in AD 70, and these signs have continued to happen in every generation leading up to the generation that we are currently in. And they're increasing with frequency because we're getting nearer and nearer towards the last days. That it starts with discomfort and pain and only grows and grows until you eventually reach the penultimate climax of that. Jesus says this is exactly what's going to happen. And this is what we see when we turn on the news, when we turn on the TV, when we turn on social media. This is what we see. Now remember, the goal is not to be uh, alarmed. The goal rather is to be alert, to keep watch and to be vigilant about the signs of the times. And then lastly, he says, not only will there be there wars and earthquakes, that there will be famines. During the 20th century alone, 100 million people died as a result of famine. Half of those happened in China. Currently, 11% of the world's population does not have access to clean drinking water. And the fourth leading cause of childhood death in the world is diarrhea due to malnutrition. Have there been famines? Yes. Will there be famines? Yes. Are there currently famines? Yes. Have there been wars, rumors of wars? Have there been natural disasters and earthquakes? Yes, yes. And are they increasing with greater frequency? Yes, things are not getting better. Things are only getting worse. And Jesus says, until the end comes, they will only get worse out from here on out. There will be a devastation. There will be a cataclysm like the world has never seen. Why do I tell you this? Not to alarm you, but to make you alert so that you can be on watch and you can be ready and you can be prepared when that day comes. Jesus says there will be devastation. Which leads to the fourth point. He says there will be distress. Here's here's what he says. Be on your guard. Jesus says this is just the beginning. It's only going to get worse and continue to increase, but don't freak out. Instead, be on guard. Why? For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Here he's talking about an increased persecution that comes against Christians and the church. He talks about being beaten in the synagogues. Now, the synagogues are basically like an Old Testament version of, say, a community center. It wasn't the temple where people make their sacrifices, but it was a place for the ancient Jews to gather together, to rub elbows with the who's who. They would throw their birthday parties there. They would have their bar mitzvahs there. They would have a town square where everybody would get together, exchange ideas. And on the Sabbath day, they would meet and they would share Bible verses. So basically, the synagogue is like an ancient version of Facebook, where people would get together, exchange ideas, and occasionally you post Bible verses. That's basically it. And he says that you will be beaten in the synagogues. We see this happen in the book of Acts chapter 4. Peter gets arrested and beaten for preaching in the synagogues. But yet we also see this in cancel culture and Facebook today. That Jesus, basically, if you want to bring it up to a 21st century paraphrase, you could say you will be beaten in the synagogues, canceled on social media, trashed on Twitter, bashed on Facebook, and your YouTube videos are going to be pulled for preaching the truth. There will be an increase of persecution against the church. And here's how persecution starts. Persecution starts with them making fun of you, and it ends with them killing you. That's how it starts. It starts with shaming you, then silencing you, and then murdering you. Here's how it starts. It starts with criticism. It moves to criminalization. And then eventually it leads to crucifixion. Ask the Jews. They could tell you how this works. Ask our brothers and sisters overseas. They could tell you how this works. There is an increase of distress that is coming towards the church. Here's what Jesus says. For they will deliver you over to councils, beaten in synagogues. Stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're going to say, but say what is ever given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated. By all, for my name's sake. In the last days, there will be an increase of persecution that comes towards the church that the world has never seen. It will be a full-on onslaught against Jesus and his people. But it's important for you to know that this is actually currently going on in the world today overseas. So right now, I want you to understand that 80%... Of all forms of religious discrimination happen against Christians. So don't listen to the woke parade that wants to tell you that Christians are the colonizers and that we are the ones who victimize and we are the oppressors and everybody else is the victims. Meanwhile, our brothers and sisters' blood is rolling through the streets. Don't listen to the criticism. They're trying to change the narrative to deceive us. 80% of all persecution is against Christians. Here's also what we see in the last 100 years. More Christians have been martyred for their faith than in the last two millennia combined. According to the Center for Global Christianity, a study out of Gordon Cromwell University, in 2019, 90,000 Christians lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. By the time that I finish this sermon and the time that it takes for me to preach this message, 10 of our brothers and sisters will be murdered because of Jesus. You say, but Pastor Byron, that's, that's all happening overseas. Yes, but what's happening over there eventually will come over here. And I'm already beginning to see the framework and the groundwork being laid for a massive persecution that is coming towards the church in America. It is coming for us very soon. And here's how all of this works. Is that in Canada, you're beginning to see freedom of speech being eliminated. This is why you can't teach about homosexuality or transgenderism or the Bible's teaching around sexuality because that's now considered hate speech. This is how you have pastors who are getting arrested. And this is also how you have men like Jordan Peterson becoming famous because of the removal and the of free speech that's beginning to take place in Canada. You see this happen in places like California, California. Where currently in California, churches are unable to reopen due to the pandemic. Churches are not able to reopen. Meanwhile, you have Hollywood celebrity crews having outdoor parties and nobody says anything about it. Small businesses not allowed to reopen. But yet, meanwhile, politicians are able to get on airplanes and get their hair done. This is how you end up having churches who are closed on Easter Sunday While in the meantime, you can go to a dispensary and you can buy your weed, you can go to Planned Parenthood and you can murder your baby, and you can go to a strip club and they can grind up and down poles and you can slip a 20 in their thong, but you can't take communion because that's dangerous. There is a framework that is being laid. It starts with criticism. It moves to criminalization, then eventually it ends to crucifixion. That's why worship pastors can't have outdoor gatherings because it's dangerous. Meanwhile, Antifa and BLM can burn down cities and riots, and they get hashtags and parades for their protests. And some of you are very offended about what I just said. And here's the reason why. Because I used your trigger words. This is called social conditioning. They are conditioning you to believe something socially. You are being socially conditioned by social media. You're being socially deceived by demons. That's what's happening. There will be an increase of deception, and there will be a great stretch of distress that comes towards the church because of the persecution that is happening. And there is a growing wave of hostility towards Christians and Christianity and religious discrimination. And it is not coming from the, it is not coming from Christians on the right, but rather it is coming from the progressive left and this is why they use big words like racist and bigot and homophobic and transphobic and they want to call you patriarchal sexists and narcissists and all these other things that they hide anonymously behind keyboards and say because everybody's brave when they're anonymous. Social conditioning. Here's how persecution starts. It starts with criticism, criminalization, crucifixion. I have a a friend that I used to go to church with who just tweeted out she's no longer a Christian. Now she is anti-Christian. And I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I see those words put together as anti-Christ. We're against Christian. Imagine the culture saying the same things that they say about Christians, about Muslims or about homosexuals or about left-handed people. Imagine them saying anything about those things. It's okay to criticize Christians, but due to intersexuality, everybody else must be lifted up because we got to honor their voice. But not Christians, though, because they're the oppressors. Meanwhile, in the time it took for me to teach this rant, one person was murdered for their faith. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the lies. But Jesus says, there's still hope. How many of you could go for some hope right about now? You're like, I could really go for some hope right now. Is the sermon going to get better? This week was rough. Next week, 10 things you never knew about the Antichrist. It's going to be rough too, okay? So next week, put your cup on, come to church. <laughs> but here Jesus does offer us some Hope. So what hope is this? He says this. He says, do not be, what's the word? Do not be anxious. Don't be anxious about what you are going to say. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid because on that day, it's going to be the Holy Spirit who begins to speak through you, that God the Holy Spirit is going to be working on you and working in you, and he's going to be redeeming you and empowering you and motivating you, and he is going to be working through your life for his good and for the glory of those who are around you. Don't worry. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Don't buy a gun. Instead, be ready to preach the good news of the gospel to anyone and everyone, because at the same time there is a greater persecution. There will be a greater opportunity like the world has never seen god will not forsake you god will not abandon you god will not give up on you he'll be right there in you working on you and through you listen as christians we got to understand something that we are not saved from trials but we are saved through trials That we don't want to have an escapist mentality. We want to have a mentality that embraces the work of God in us and through us. We are not saved from trials, but rather we are saved through trials. And we persevere even in the midst of a great persecution. The great commission is still intact. It's still our command to go and make disciples. And the last word of the Great Commission is an eschatological promise from our Lord Jesus who says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Do not give up. Do not give in. He is with you and will work through you for his glory. So does that mean that I have to move to Jasper? No. No. Unless you want to, Jasper's a lovely city. It's amazing. Their Dairy Queen is great. Which leads to point number five, is that there will be declaration. And the gospel must be proclaimed to the nations. This is why, as Christians, we can't take this mindset. We got to go. We got to get away. We got to run. We got to pick up arms and fight. No. We got to preach the gospel to the nations. In the parallel account, it says, Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. People have asked me, Pastor Byron, how close are we to the end? In AD 70, the end began. And we've been getting closer and closer every single day. So what sign is left to be fulfilled before Jesus returns? Now, me personally, I don't want to be dogmatic and set a date or a time. In fact, the Bible explicitly forbids us from doing those sort of things. But as I study and read and as I pray and the more theologians I read and conversations I have, the more intrigued I am that there may only be one sign yet to be fulfilled until the end comes. Say, so, well, what sign is that? Well, next week we're going to talk about the abomination of desolation that's going to happen in Mark chapter 13, 14. But beyond that, I would say that this might be the last sign to be fulfilled. It's the gospel being preached to all the nations. When the gospel is preached to all nations, then the end will come. When the person in the furthest reaches of the world where everybody has had an opportunity and a chance to hear the message of Jesus Christ, that their sins can be forgiven, that their eternity can be sure that Jesus died in the cross for their sins, that he resurrected to overcome the grave for their sins. And no matter who they are, what they've done, where they're from, or what country or language they speak in, the good news of the gospel is for them. When everyone gets a chance to hear that, then the end will come. You say, well, how close are we to that taking place? I don't know. How close are you to being bold enough to share your faith? How close are we to seeing that happen? How active are you in doing the work of evangelism? Do you have your invite card? Every invite card you lay down, we're just a little bit closer to the end. Every time you invite a friend to church, we're just a little bit closer to the end. Every time you share your faith at work, every time you evangelize or witness with somebody else, every time a person in our church gets saved, we get just a little bit closer to the end. I'm excited that as Redemption Church, we get to be a part of the greatest missionary movement in the history of the world. Right now, there are Assemblies of God missionaries on every continent, in every country, ministering and serving people all across the world. Our Southern Baptist brothers and sisters are the largest missionary force on the planet right now with millions of missionaries on the ground. As a church, we support multiple missionaries in in China, in Muslim closed nations, in atheist Europe, in South America. We partner with organizations like Live Dead, who are ministering underground churches in the Muslim world, in the Silk Road, back in Turkey, and all the way through China. We support those missionaries. 10% of our funds go towards missions giving, globally and locally. We're partnered with the Church Multiplication Network. That's who we are. We have a vision to plant 10,000 churches in the next 10 years. I'm excited about that. As a church here, we're planning by year 2025, we want to start a second campus. My dream is that Redemption Church will have 10 locations all across Texas and southwest Louisiana. Every time we send a missionary, we get a little bit closer. Every time we plant another church, we get a little bit closer. Every time you tithe, we get a little closer. Every dollar you give, every soul that gets saved, we get a little bit closer. I want you to know that we are closer today than we were yesterday, and tomorrow we will be one day closer yet still. If you're taking notes, write that down. We are closer today than we were yesterday. Say, well, how close are we? I remember my first CMN organization that we went to. there There was a company there called the Seed Company, and they're a Bible translation company working with Wyclef, and they believe that They will have the Bible translated into every known language on the planet by the year 2025. So by the year 2025, the gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations. Say, Byron, does that mean that Jesus is coming back in four years? No. He could come back in 40 years. He could come back in 4,000 years. He could come back tonight. Nobody knows the day nor the hour But we do need to be on watch, we do need to be on guard, and we do need to interpret and look and see the signs of the times. Jesus says, first, this gospel must be preached to all of the nations, and then the end will come. Right now, as a church here today, we have 14 men and women who are going through the Redemption Leadership College. Many of them have a passion and a call, they believe, towards missions. And so as a church, not only do we support mission work, but we're also going to be sending our very first in-house missionary to Africa this year with Erica Walker. Let's all give her a big praise, big shout. Erica Walker is a deacon of our our missions and outreach department, and she's taken her RLC to become uh, ordained with the Assemblies of God. And this summer she will actually be going on her very first short-term itineration mission trip in Africa. So, Erica, we love you. Thank you so much. There will be a gospel declaration, which leads to the last point. The last thing that Jesus says in this verse has confused theologians, scholars, pastors, and third grade Christian school teachers. Here's what Jesus says. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a... Haunting response to an innocent question. Jesus, these temples are amazing. And Jesus says, it's all going to be destroyed. Uh Uh-oh. And then he closes with this statement. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is what many people have come to believe and teach as the rapture of the church. What many of you in the back of your head, you're thinking throughout this series, you're like, "Um, are we going to be here for all of this? which brings up what theologians call the already-not-yet paradox. That Jesus has already defeated sin, but yet sin still remains. How is that possible? Already-not-yet. That Jesus said the end is beginning, but yet the end is not here. And so people want to know, are we going to be here for this? Is this going to happen, or are we going to go home first? What are we going to do? Now, for me personally, here's the way that I like to read the Bible. I like to read the Bible by interpreting the unclear text by the clear text. So if something's confusing, I want to bring it to what is not. And what I, what I like to do is I like to take the simplest explanation as possible, because I believe God wrote the book and he wants us to understand it. He didn't write it to confuse us. And people want to know, are we going to endure distress? Are we going to endure devastation? Are we going to go through all these things? And then I read here in Mark chapter 13 where it says, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. He closes with this statement. And churches have divided and fought and much ink has been spilled over what do we believe when it comes to the end times, especially when it comes to the rapture of the church. So here's what I want to do to close. I want to give you four views Of eschatology and I have a chart you say Byron you're already over time I know I am already over time and now you pull up a chart I know (laughs) that's why you're not beating the Baptist to Chili's okay you say this is important it's important for us to grasp and understand this because so many of us we live in a day where you're fed nothing more than popcorn theology and you're living on a steady diet of cotton candy and soda pop when it comes to biblical preaching. And you might know John three sixteen, but you don't know one side of the Bible from the other. It's important for us to understand what it truly is that we under, understand, because if you don't know what you believe, then you're going to end up believing anything. Amen? And so, Redemption, you're smart. We can do this. So take off your tinfoil hat and put on your thinking cap. Let me give you four views of eschatology, all right? The first view is this. It's called historical premillennialism. So this is the post-trib premillennialism. And here's what this would actually teach. Camera guys, you still on me? That there is a growing pains and an increase of tribulation up until we reach the moment of the second coming. The second coming, Jesus comes, And then the new millennial reign begins, a thousand year of peace, and then the final judgment happens at the very end. This is called historical premillennialism, post-tribulation rapture. The second view is this, pre-trib, dispensational premillennialism, okay? And here's what they believe. Same thing, premillennial. However, the second coming starts with an invisible rapture of the church before the seven years of tribulation mentioned in the book of Daniel. And then after the seven years of tribulation, the second coming happens. And then the millennial reign begins as we have a thousand years of peace. At the end of the millennial reign, Satan is released from the pit according to Revelation chapter 20. Then he deceives the nations one last time. Jesus comes, destroys them, throws them into the pit, judges the living and the dead. And then we receive our resurrected bodies. That's, we're like, that's the pre-trib, dispensational pre And then you have post Millennialism, not to be confused with post-millennialism. He gets it now. He gets it. Post-millennialism, which means that everything took place in AD 70 and that we are after the millennium and then the second coming of judgment takes place. There will be no tribulation through that time. And then there's amillennism, which means it's a symbolic millennium. It's where the church age and the tribulation and also uh, the millennium are happening all simultaneously. And it's a symbolic interpretation. At the end, the second coming and the rapture will take place, along with the final judgment. It'll be like a fireworks show, and it all just explodes at the very end. That's what, that's what they teach as well. So with that being said, let me just ask you some questions. First question is, how many of you are historical, pre-millennial, post-tribulation people? I've got a, hand, a couple of hands raised. Okay, how many of you are, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. How many of you are dispensational, pre-millennial, pre-trib rapture people? How many of you are post-millennial? How many of you are ah, ah-millennial? You know how they got their name? They're like "Ah, ah-millennium, right? "Ah, Ah-millennial. No, no millennium. That's how they got their name. How many of you don't know what I'm talking about? I want you to look around the room with all the hands raised. What we believe is not as important as us gathered together around this single truth. That it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We all agree on when Jesus or that Jesus is coming back. We all just disagree a little bit on the details. And so you want to know where I stand? I'll show you my cards. Here's my cards. I am a historic, premillennial, post-tribulation eschatologist. So let's say that all three times fast. (laughs) But here's here's my heart is this, is that I would rather be a hopeful pre-trib, prepared post-trib. I mean, if Jesus comes back, I'm not going to fight him. Right, if Jesus is like, I'm coming to take you home. I'm like, not me, Jesus. Let me stay for the blood moons and all of the beasts out of the sea. I want to say, I'm not going to argue. If he wants to come today, I'm ready. I got my rapture practice in. I'm good to go. <laughs> but if I have to stay and endure to the end to be saved, then I want to be prepared. So as a church, write this down. Let's hope for the best and prepare for the worst. The question is not, will Jesus come back? It's clear he is. The question is, when? And more importantly, when he comes back, will you be ready? Is he coming back for you? Is he coming to get you? Are you going to be with him? The question is, when he comes back, will you be prepared? Or will you be found wanting and waiting? And will you not be able to be with him on that day? That's the question. So if you're here today and you don't know where your eternity lies, there is no time for you to waste. He could come tonight. He can come tomorrow. You never know when he will return, but he is coming again. Are you ready for that day?